Often we see Jesus coming into a situation where there's chaos and confusion and uh, unrest and he comes and he brings peace. There are other times though when Jesus brings upset and stirs things up and this is one of those cases. I hope you're getting the idea that uh, each of Jesus' signs has multiple levels, starting with the physical level of the sign itself and then going right into the heart level where we see Jesus' identity that the sign is revealing. So up front, let's identify these levels in this passage. Uh, It's quite a long passage, I encourage you to maybe have the Bible open in front of you and have the story before you as we, as we look at it. On the surface level, we see that Jesus heals the man's physical blindness and we see his response there in verse 17 is that Jesus must be a prophet. Jesus is one who has the spirit upon him and therefore the power to heal and this power is a sign that he is one who speaks the word of the Lord. See, the Jews' expectation based on the biblical criteria for distinguishing between a true and a false prophet is that uh, the prophet should uh, demonstrate that they have the spirit by giving a sign there in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Often a prediction of the future that comes true, but also miracles. And so Moses and Elijah performed many signs to show that they were sent from the Lord. That in itself though wasn't the watertight proof that someone was a true prophet. There was another condition that needed to be met a little bit earlier in Deuteronomy 13. Does the prophet speak in in agreement with what's already been revealed in God's word given to Israel? So they may give a sign that causes people to wonder, that gets their confidence, but then if they feed them with false and idolatrous teaching, then they are to be still rejected as a false prophet. So as as we've been seeing again and again, this surface level of the sign points us in the right direction, making us ask, who is this man? But there needs to be more. There needs to be the hearing of Jesus' words because it's the truth of those words that will produce real faith. So don't come to Jesus just to get a miracle. Come to him to hear his word. Now on the next level, we see Jesus' conversation there with the Pharisees at the end of the passage and it points to the need of healing of another kind in which not just physical eyes but spiritual eyes are opened. Physical healing in itself is great. It shows Jesus' compassion for those who are suffering. It points forward to the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no physical blindness. But it's also a picture of our greater need for the eyes of our heart to be opened, to be saved from our spiritual blindness and darkness. Many times the Gospel is described as the light shining into dark places 
of hearts that were darkened being enlightened. So who's able to open our eyes to see the truth and the beauty of the Lord? Well, it's Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the one who can do this. He's the only one who can enable us to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. Then the third level, the heart level, is of Jesus' identity, which he kindly states it right at the very start. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember John's opening words in John chapter 1? In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Light is intrusive. You can shine light into darkness but you can't shine darkness into light. That creation, darkness was the starting point. There was darkness over the face of the deep, Genesis 1-2. Then God spoke and light shone into the darkness and separated the day from the night. So light dispels the darkness by coming into it, which is why it says the true light was coming into the world. Now, other religions and philosophies, they'll tell us that there's already light within us and light in the world in the sense of spiritual light and all we have to do is look inside us and discover that light. But the Bible tells us the opposite. The world and everyone in it is in darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of ignorance that's in us not because we haven't had the opportunity to know, but because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we need the light to shine into our hearts. And that light isn't information, as the university will tell you. That light is Jesus himself. Well, now that we've identified these three levels, let's, let's look a bit more closely at the passage as it unfolds. We're told that this man's blindness was from birth and it raises that thorny question again, a bit more explicitly this time, about the relationship between suffering and sin. Now the Jews understood correctly that all suffering in the world is a result of the curse that came because of Adam's sin. It's a curse that is spread to all people because we all sin, we're all in Adam. But they also believed wrongly that we can always draw a straight line between every instance of suffering to a specific sin. So in that line of thinking, it must have been, in their thinking, that this man sinned must have been in his mother's womb because he was born blind, or his parents sinned and they were being punished by God and given a disabled child. But that isn't just a Jewish idea. It actually runs through all cultures, uh, whether it's Asian culture, Western culture, it's there. When something bad happens, 
The two most common responses, both of which I've seen, one is to say, what bad thing have I done in the past to bring this about? That idea that people now call karma. Karma is popular not just with Hindus or Buddhists. Just go to YouTube and search instant karma and you'll see hundreds of videos of people doing bad things and immediately it backfires on them and they're called instant karma. So even people who aren't religious, they have trouble shaking off this sense that seems ingrained within us that there, there must be justice in the universe. There's something seriously wrong if evil does not go unpunished, that's ingrained in us. The second response is to shake our fist at God on the assumption that he is righteous and just or should be and we say, how can you let this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I'm not a bad person. Now, of course, we never complain to God when he showers us with blessings or good gifts that we don't deserve. It's always out of our self-righteousness based on our tally of our good works or our niceness that we try to hold God accountable and we, we want to hold him to our definition and our standard of justice. So, is this suffering because of his own sin, karma, or his parents' sin? Jesus says, neither. There's actually a much bigger purpose in what happens in our lives and in the world than merely this uh, impersonal, karma-like balancing of the scales of justice that we want. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including life and death, sickness and health, suffering and comfort. Not merely because he knows the future, but because he plans the future. Here's how the London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. Without reference to anything outside himself, he did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. Now, we, we may struggle to accept that whole statement in full without actually looking at it in detail to see what it's saying, but sometimes that's because we feel upset when our human sovereignty is challenged. We don't like the idea that God has the right to overrule all things. And we may also find it hard because unlike God, we cannot see the end from the beginning. In the midst of our suffering, we don't always see or understand how it is that God will ultimately bring good out of the situation. And that's where we're called 
to live by faith and not by sight. God has no obligation to explain himself and his actions to us. He doesn't owe us anything. He's God and we are not God. But he's also revealed his character to us. Righteous, good, generous, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so on the basis of his character, we can trust that he is in control of those things that we cannot see. This man has had to live by faith and not by literal sight for 38 years. Here, Jesus graciously opens up the Father's sovereign will concerning this man. See, God isn't obligated to tell us what he's doing or what he's going to do, but he graciously often does. His blindness isn't punishment for sin, but it was designed in the Father's good purpose for this very moment. After so many years of not knowing why he was blind, after so many years of difficulty, so many years of the shame of being accused again and again of being a sinner, this man now has the honour of going down in history as an example of the gracious work of God. And more than that, he'll not only have his physical eyes opened, but he'll have his spiritual eyes opened as well. And the joy that he will know in the kingdom of God will far outweigh his light and momentary affliction. So in a brief moment, he goes from being an outcast and a beggar to one in whom the works of God are displayed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, then in verse 6, we go from this difficult doctrine of God's eternal decree to this intriguing and bemusing action of Jesus. He spits on the ground, makes mud with his saliva and wipes the mud on the man's eyes. So we've gone from this high heavenly vision of God's sovereignty now to the one who is God in the flesh and he's crouching down, getting his hands dirty. To remind you a bit of creation, God got his hands dirty, making the man out of clay. What's going on here? Jesus has power to heal with a word, but instead... He's going through this strange ritual of mud made from saliva and then sending the man off to wash in the pool. Now for Jews, spitting was a way that uncleanness was spread. Bodily fluids were considered unclean. So if you spit on someone to make them unclean, you do it to harm them, not to heal them. However, there was also a popular belief, not biblical belief, but popular at the time, that someone with a high level of holiness could reverse this. So some of the healers who claimed to be healers would use bodily fluids to try and bring about healing by imparting some of their own holiness to that person. There may be a hint of that there. 
Jesus, we know, don't we, does things like touching lepers that should technically make him unclean, but instead he makes them clean. We saw Jesus deliberately overturning the Pharisees' traditions of what is clean and unclean. But there's there's a more obvious explanation for what Jesus is doing here, which we can see in the passage itself. Jesus has just said, we must work the works of him who sent me, which is reminiscent of chapter 5 when he said, my father is working up until now and I too am working. And then we're told in verse 14 that the day he did this was the Sabbath. So again, Jesus has deliberately picked the Sabbath to heal this man. He could have just healed the man with a word, sent him away and no fuss would have been made except the wonder over the miracle. But instead he does something that according to the traditions of the Pharisees was forbidden on the Sabbath. He adds water to dust to make clay. That was a forbidden practice. That was considered work. So he's deliberately breaking the Sabbath, at least according to the Pharisees' traditions, in order to cause a fuss. But that doesn't explain why he then sends him to wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam was a pool fed by a spring. Again, if you visit Jerusalem today, you can visit the pool of Siloam uh, down there at the bottom of the picture. It was located near the gate called the Fountain Gate and pilgrims to Jerusalem for the festivals would use it to ritually wash themselves in before going up the steps to the temple to pray and worship. But it's not just because of this ritual use that Jesus sends him to this pool. It's because of a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and Remelah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armour and be shattered. Strap on your armour and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, Shiloh, there is the Hebrew version of Siloam. So he's speaking here of that pool. Rezin was the king of Syrian, was the Syrian king based in Damascus, and the son of Remaliah was a man called Pekah, who was the kingdom, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So these two men 
Pekah, the king of Israel, and Remelah in Damascus, they'd formed an alliance and they were threatening the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the people of Judah at this time, they had refused the waters of Shiloh, symbolic of rejecting the Lord, the Lord who is the fountain of living waters, who was dwelling in their midst. And instead, they were considering going along with the north in their alliance with the Syrians. As a consequence, judgment was coming. Instead of the gentle flow of the spring of God's gracious presence among them, he says there will come a flood of a mighty river, verse 7, representing the king of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, the great kingdom up north. He'll sweep down like a river from the north and conquer the whole region. Now notice how he calls the people Emmanuel and says that their judgment is because God is with us, which is what Emmanuel means. God's presence among his people is like a gentle, flowing, life-giving spring of water, but because of their unbelief and idolatry, it will be like a raging torrent that brings wrath. So let's bring that imagery then back to our passage. Jesus is Emmanuel, isn't he? He is God with us and he is the fountain of living waters. And so he sends this man to the pool of Siloam where the actual healing takes place. His blindness is washed away as he washes himself in the gently flowing spring of water at Siloam. The sign itself, healing his blindness, as as, as if to say, now who is going to see the real significance of this miracle? Who's going to remember Isaiah chapter 8? Who will claim to see but will prove themselves to be blind? And who is blind who will come to see? So the miracle will bring about a division between those who see and believe and those who claim to see but are actually blind in their unbelief. For those who prove themselves blind, who refuse the waters of Siloam, there will be a judgment because of their unbelief. Now, this man's healing causes quite a kerfuffle. The people are confused over whether this is the man that they knew to be blind. The Pharisees, they're divided, they're confused as to how, how can a man who is a Sabbath breaker conceivably have power from God to heal? His parents, well they're fearful because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue so they refuse to get involved. But let's take notice of what is actually taking place for this man through all of this fuss and confusion. You notice how he keeps being told to speak and to tell what happened. And as he does this, it seems that something is happening in him. So in response to the people, he says, 
there was this man uh, called Jesus and he put the mud on my eyes and told me to go wash. At this point, he knows virtually nothing about Jesus except that it was a man with the very common Jewish name, Jesus or Joshua. Through him he'd received his sight. Then the Pharisees make him tell the story again. This time when they ask his conclusion of who they think he thinks Jesus is, he says he's a prophet. Seems that the act of recounting what Jesus has done has helped him to see that Jesus isn't just some, some guy called Jesus, he, at least he must be a prophet. Then the Pharisees summon him again and they demand that he tell the story again. This time though, he ends up preaching to them, defending Jesus, saying that the fact that Jesus has done this proves he must be a worshipper of God who does God's will and therefore he must be from God. Do you see what's happening? Each time the man speaks, his comprehension of Jesus deepens. So what a a beautiful irony that as all around him are confused and fearful and angry as they demand that he recount what Jesus has done for him so that they can condemn him, he just sees more and more clearly who Jesus is. But this journey isn't complete until Jesus finds him and makes himself known. His belief that Jesus is a prophet from God is a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. It's still faith based purely on the sign of the miracle, of the healing. He needs faith in Jesus not just as a prophet, but as the Son of Man, that figure from Daniel 7 who received all authority from the Ancient of Days and whom all nations bow down and worship. And he needs to come to that faith not through speculation or working it out himself but by actually encountering Jesus. He knows that Jesus has the ability to heal a blind man. He's come to realise that Jesus isn't just a miracle healer but he's a prophet who's able to open the eyes of the spiritually blind by speaking the word of God. But now... He comes face to face with Jesus, the true light who has come into the world and he falls down and worships. This short conversation is in a way a picture of the conversation that we have had or should have if we haven't already with Jesus in our own coming to faith. We see that Jesus is the one who makes the initiative. We don't start out as seekers of God or spiritually minded people who are seeking the truth. Without God's revelation of himself, we're nothing but blind beggars. Jesus is the one who comes to us in our blindness and like he did with this man, he might do a work that grabs our attention, that gives us reason to look up and to question He brings us on a journey, one in which 
we may not actually be aware of it until we look back and we see the circumstances and the people that he used to bring us a step closer to where he wants us to be so that we're prepared to meet him. He then calls us to repent and believe. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the one in whose hands God the Father entrusted all authority in heaven and earth, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one to whom you owe all your worship? And our response, rightly, shouldn't be, yes, because I've worked it all out myself. It also shouldn't be no because I've worked it out and I've decided it can't be true. It should be simply this man's response. How am I to know who he is unless you show me? Or to use the words of John the Baptist, I cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to me from heaven. Or Jesus himself, truly, truly, unless I am born again, I cannot see the kingdom of God. We may be able to see with our physical eyes, as this man now could, but we must confess our spiritual blindness, as this man also did. We will never know Jesus to be able to have true faith in him unless he makes himself known to us. It's his work, not ours. His self-revelation isn't a response to our believing. It's the opposite. Our faith can only be a response to his Self-revelation. Then when Jesus tells us these two things, you have seen me and I'm talking to you, we're enabled to confess true faith in him and to fall down and truly worship him with a faith that's based on his words to us, not our interpretation of our experience. So whether you were conscious of the process at the time or not, that's how Jesus has brought you to faith in himself. That's the only way that Jesus' cross and resurrection could make sense to you. It's the only way that you can actually believe that Jesus has borne your sin in his death and given you the sure hope of the resurrection. With the eyes of true faith, it makes sense but it's only because it's been given to us from above. But it's also how we are to grow in faith. The more we speak of Jesus, the more we testify to what he has done, and it may be that we say, like this man, I don't really know much. All I can say is, this is what Jesus has done for me. The firmer we do that, the the more we do that, the firmer we'll find ourselves standing in our faith. The truths of the faith, they're not just to be believed silently in the mind, but to be expressed with the mouth. We're not only to believe in our hearts that Jesus rose from the dead, but to confess with our mouth that he is Lord. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's no such thing as a private Christian faith. Like it or not, you are a representative, an ambassador for Jesus in this world. You have a responsibility to see that the words you speak convey the truth of who he is. 
And if that's a difficult or scary thing for you, as I said, just remember this man. Start small. One moment, he's just simply recounting what Jesus did for him. One thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. Then, before he knows it, he's speaking the truth even to the Pharisees as he's been enabled by God. Jesus then concludes, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So just like the entry of light into the creation on the first day brought about a separation of day and night, so too the entry of Jesus the light brings a separation between people, those who believe and those who don't, between those who can see and those who are blind. And this sign has shown that not all who claim to see can actually see and that many who start out blind come to see by the power of God. This is what Jesus means by this word judgment. His judgment always brings a separation, whether it's described as blind and seen or sheep and goats, wise and foolish, righteous and wicked, sons and slaves. In the light that is Jesus and his words, the distinction is made clear. You either believe or you don't. There's no option to sit on the middle ground. But there's another way in which we need to hear these words for judgment. I came into this world. Jesus coming into the world and the rejection of him by his own people is a confirmation of the world's darkness, proving beyond doubt that humanity deserves the wrath of God. If there was ever any doubt about humanity's total depravity, that doubt was put to bed when God the Son stepped into the world and humanity nailed him to a cross. See, the ultimate judgment that Jesus is speaking of here is the cross, which is on one hand a display, a public display of the heart of human beings as the Son of God is lifted up and humanity We shake our fists at him and we proudly declare God is dead and we've killed him. So the cross displays the deepest darkness of our sin and rebellion. Yet on the other hand, at the same time, this judgment for which Jesus came into the world is a judgment not to give but to receive. It's a judgment that he willingly and obediently steps under and bears for the salvation of those who were nailing him there, who were shouting in the crowd, crucify him, which would have been any one of us if we were there on that day. Jesus' death reveals and secures God's judgment upon a humanity who oppose him and it mercifully redeems those who will come to him and believe. Or to put it in the terminology of this passage, the cross confirms and secures the blindness of those who might claim to see but whose hearts are far from him. And it brings healing, it brings restoration of sight 
to all who in their blindness, in their utter helplessness, are helpless unless Jesus comes to them and restores them. So we who know Jesus can truly say, as we sang earlier, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray.